When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. On the 31st of March, 1547, 475 years ago this week, King Francois I of France died at the age of 52. He had been ill for some time with disease affecting his stomach, throat, kidneys and lungs. When the doctors opened his body, one physician commented that the king's insides were rotten. In the days leading up to his death, Francois sought to settle his affairs. He heard mass, he took communion, he admitted his sins, including frequently breaking the Ten Commandments, and he spoke with his 28-year-old son and heir, Henri, to instruct him in the art of kingship. In the 32 years before that fateful day, Francois's reign had helped to usher in the Renaissance in France and build relations between France and the Ottoman Empire, He had led his troops into battle in the Italian wars and challenged his nemesis, Charles V. So often, in fact, it can be hard to keep track. In 1525, he was even held prisoner for a year by Charles. His sons were held captive for several years further. And he invited Leonardo da Vinci into his country, and with him, the Renaissance. Yet for all the colour and drama of his reign, anniversaries of Francois' birth or death often passed with little fuss. Here to talk to us about Francois and some of the significant people in his life is Leonie Frieda, the author of Francis I, The Maker of Modern France. Leonie is a writer and translator speaking no fewer than five languages who has also written a best-selling biography of Francois's daughter-in-law, Catherine de' Medici, which is currently being made into a drama series on stars called The Serpent Queen, as well as being the author of The Deadly Sisterhood, a story of women power and intrigue in the Italian Renaissance. Leonie, it is a wonderful pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors and to talk about this very important man. We often know him as Francis, but of course he's Francois, Premier, Francois I, who roared from January 1515 until March 1547. Lots of people have heard his name, but can you help us locate him in history? Who were his contemporaries or peers around Europe? His contemporaries, Henry VIII, is the most obvious. And Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Suleiman the Magnificent, they were always interacting, usually in a rather sort of combative way. And then the papacy needs to be kept in mind at all times because to have the Pope on your side helped a lot. Not that the Pope could contribute troops, but yeah, having his blessing meant a lot to the people and the soldiers. Can you describe 
to us what Francois looked like as a grown man, because the other reference that people might have in their minds, if they're fans of the Tudors, is the competition between Henry VIII and Francois about their calves. Did he have the same sort of presence that we might imagine Henry VIII had in a room? Oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely. I would say very jolly presence, really, a sort of very pale fellow, well-met, but actually he really meant it. He was absolutely secure in his position, felt very at ease being king. I suspect in a way that Henry didn't, because the Tudors hadn't been around for as long, although later on Francois became more volatile and temperamental. He was incredibly courteous and gallant. For presence, I would say that Francois would be preferable. You'd feel less in danger of losing your head. And for physical presence, Henry was, I think, a little shorter than Francois. He was six foot, had dark, smooth hair, cut into a page boy haircut. He was considered a fine-looking man, not good-looking, but he had masses of majesty. And he was the first king to be called Your Majesty, interestingly enough, although he was also known as Big Nose because he had a massive nose. <laughs> the one thing he didn't have was he had spindly legs, which looked rather odd underneath, holding up this sort of broad chest, broad back. Well, let's go back in time a bit and talk about Francois's parents, because his journey to the throne is really quite fascinating. So tell us about his mother and his father and how they came to be married. His mother, Louise of Savoy, was the daughter of a younger son, a Duchy of Savoy, which was an independent duchy, uh, later incorporated into France. And her father had lost all his territories in the wars that had gone on earlier. And so he was known as Philip Lackland, or Son. Not a very promising name if you were putting your daughter out as a bride. And his wife was a Bourbon. And Louise was half Bourbon. And when her mother died, Philip sent the son and daughter to go and live with France, who was the regent, effective regent. And there was a rebellion by the senior princes and so on about the fact that this woman was running the regency council when really she had the business, but she had the person of the king in her care, so that gave her power. So that there was an uprising, and Louise's husband-to-be was a junior branch of the royal family, and he was part of the rebellion against Madame la Grande Anne of France. And when she captured him, as a punishment, she married him to Louise because she was the least appetizing bride from the point of view of what she could bring to the marriage in the form of assets and worldly goods. And they were married when Louise was 11 years old. And then he didn't see her again. I mean, he protested loudly over this union. And he didn't see her again until she was 15 and she was sent down to live at Cognac, the great fortress castle there where they ran their own little court. And he had two mistresses in Sword. They'd been there for longer than Louise had been alive, probably. They had daughters of their own. But she cleverly, and I think she was a survivor because she came to the French court with nothing. The regent didn't have time. She was fighting all sorts of wars and signing peace treaties for the Hundred Years' War, for example. A very bright woman, but she just didn't have time for these extra two little children. Louise brought her little brother with her. And so Louise was brought up with a sense of lack. She never had enough. 
There was a special crimson dress that you had to wear in certain processions, and she simply didn't have enough money to even buy the crimson silk. And so she was not anybody's idea of an ideal match. So it was about as bad a draw as you could get if you were sitting in the Count of Angoulême's position. But anyway, they got along very well, and they both loved reading, and they created a great library there, and she ran a very good court. And she was an incredibly bright woman and had been brought up as far as possible by tutors chosen by the regent of France who gave her a humanist education. But she never got over her sense of not being good enough, and so her son was her vehicle to greatness. Yes, she does seem to have had such ambition on his behalf, and that seems to be so important in his story in terms of his journey to the throne. Yeah, without her, one wonders, really. He could well have ended up being the regent for his own bastard son because he fancied the twelfth's last wife so much that he would have made love to her had his mother not given him probably the one and only telling off he ever got from her. (laughs) He had a sister who was born two years before him called Marguerite, and she ended up becoming... First, the Duchess of Alon, and then the Queen of Navarre. And she was incredibly bright, but she adored Francis, and he grew up being adored and rather spoiled. But Louise made sure they got a good education, but her, then his succession of deaths brought him to prominence and a much more full and supervised situation. And in the years after the death of Charles VIII, I suppose, but in English, that freak accident of 1498, it seems that Louise of Savoy was involved in quite a lot of backroom drama, I suppose we could say, to help keep her son secure and make sure that eventually he would come to the throne. Because he was the rightful heir apparent. He was never given the title Dauphin because Louis XII always hoped that he would have a son, but he didn't. And eventually, two years after the death of Charles VIII, they were brought to come and live, Louis thought, with them. But then when he saw Louise, he realised that they would not. And his wife, Anne of Brittany, who had a child every year that died, apart from two girls, he realised that wasn't going to work at all because Louise was such a strong woman and she loved evenings with humanist scholars and musicians and artists and she held some salons, if you like, and that was considered a bit fresh, really, and a bit loose. <laughs> and Anna Brittany was much more old-fashioned and I would say still living the feudal and non-Renaissance lifestyle and rather disapproved of Louise. And Louise was so openly ambitious for Francois that it meant that by showing her ambition for Francois and her certainty that he would make it to the throne, she was giving a silent message to Anne that you you won't have a son, which was heartbreaking. Yes, because under Salic law, In France, only men could inherit the throne, unlike in England, for example. So we get to 1515, Louis XII, poor thing, dies in agony in the early hours, and Louise's diary reports, on the first day of January, my son was king of France. Must have been a great moment of triumph for her. Tell us a bit about Francois's character in those early years as king. 
I think he was probably at his very best because what his mother and his sister had worked so hard to make him into a man worthy of the crown, if you like, and able to maintain his throne and his kingdom and all the attributes that kingship needed, and especially in those very difficult days coming out of feudalism and into the early modern period. The birth pains of that, of ending feudalism, didn't happen overnight. That was quite a challenge, but I think Francois was very forgiving and very determined. First of all, his obsession was really to capture Milan, which Louis XII had lost. And in fact, Louis XII died with an army waiting at Lyon. And it was from Lyon, it was a taking off point to go over the Alps into Italy and to get Milan. And so there was already an army there waiting. And then took a very unusual route, known only by shepherds, apparently. Took everyone by surprise, therefore gave him a hell of an advantage. He made it and had the most fantastic victory. And it was the Battle of Marignano in 1515, and he couldn't be more ecstatic. And he stayed in it for a long time, you know, making sure Milan was secure and meeting all these Italian princes. And the Pope even came to him, which is quite unusual. And he just received everyone, including Leonardo who had been, up until then, the court painter for the Sorta, who were the Dukes of Milan. And he was so delighted to meet Leonardo, who invited him to come and live in France, which is how that happened. Although he was very old at this point, he was in his last few years. So he brought with him La Gioconda, or Mona Lisa. He helped Francois with some architectural drawings and designs and things, and he set up the christenings for the first two sons that Claude, the daughter of Louis XII, who'd married Francois, had produced. And so he, he livened things up, but he was pretty old. And Francois gave him a manor house at Amboise, one of the great chateaux of the Loire. And he died supposedly in Francois' arms, but that I think is highly unlikely. And that's an apocryphal story. But Francois absolutely worshipped Leonardo. And I get the impression that he was, I suppose, boisterous, kind of restless. You write about how he travelled through his kingdom all the time, didn't stay anywhere for that long, and energetic and smart and inquisitive. It doesn't feel like he and Claude were very well matched. She seems to have been quite pious and quiet and (laughs) shy. And Claude knew that he had two mistresses. The first one was Marguerite de Foix from a very important noble family down south. And she just took that on the nose. And she loved Francois very much. But hunting was his favourite. Trained you for warfare as well. Yes, it certainly was not the kind of disdain for governance that people tend to see it as. You know, it's an essential part of kingship, isn't it, in the 16th century? Absolutely, yeah. Charles V never led his troops into battle, as far as I know. And Francois was determined to be this roi chevalier, knightly king. And after the Battle of Marignane, where they took back Milan, he was knighted on the field of battle by one of his favourite soldiers. He begged to be knighted. He could have knighted himself, the same thing at all. <laughs> <laughs> and in your book, you call him... France's most significant monarch, and I'd like to try and explore that a bit with you. You've mentioned 
Leonardo da Vinci. So perhaps let's start there with the arts and culture. What was the significance of Francois in these areas? I think that is the significance in that he appreciated the arts. His mother had taught him very well and he had a natural bent for reading and pictures, music, building and he was a true renaissance man and if you look at the library he collected he had every single book in france copied and put into his library which is amazing and the louvre is based around his original art collection he also built these amazing chateaux or rebuild like Blois was a rebuild and you can see the Francois Premier wing and it's got an incredible staircase probably designed by Leonardo. France and England have had this tremendous hundred years war and it meant that there were fortresses everywhere but these could now, instead of arrow slits, you could break them open and have windows and have arched walkways that were covered. The climate's quite clement in the Loire region and it doesn't have very cold winters usually. And he was able to rebuild, so Amboise got rebuilt and that was really known as the children's nursery and that's where he was brought up. And that was beautiful and I've spent many hours there just wondering what it was like. And also the appropriated Chenonso, which is one of the most beautiful and delicate palaces or chateau, which covers the river next to it, the River Loire. And it's privately owned, but you can go there. He also built Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which is an enormous place. It's now sort of come into Paris or the outskirts of Paris have surrounded him. I mean, he rebuilt, oh, the Louvre, obviously, and that palace was before that a horrible Dour medieval fortress. And they've actually excavated a, one of the towers and you can see how bleak it was compared to the fantastic Renaissance buildings. But the greatest, I think, for me, is the Chambord, which is almost something out of Arabian Nights. It seems to rise out of the mist. It's actually a mist that's going down rather than the palace rising. And that's in the Loire Valley. And it is minarets and it has... So you could picnic up on the roof in different parts of the huge chateau and see the men coming back from the hunt. And the strange thing is, with all these palaces, there's no furniture. And that is quite striking. And so they had to carry the furniture with them. And now I believe the French government are actually trying to furnish in copies. And where they can, they brought back the original furniture of the French court. But that's very difficult, having had a revolution and so on. And I'm thrilled that I think the French government is doing the right thing by trying to furnish these palaces because they need to be brought to life and help give the visitor an idea of how people lived in those days. Yes, it's interesting. When I worked at Hampton Court, we made a decision to put arras or the equivalent of arras or tapestries on the walls because the walls were whitewashed, which were exactly as it would have looked when Henry VIII was not in residence. But most people want to imagine he is when they come to visit. And can you imagine the sort of scale of manoeuvring Francois around and putting all that stuff into place every time they arrived at something? It must have been an extraordinary endeavour. It really must have been a logistics nightmare. There's a lot of moaning because who had a chateau big enough if they weren't staying at one of the royal palaces? 
they'd plant themselves at some poor wretch's chateau, completely bankrupt by the end of the stay. And when it smelt too bad and there was no more food, they'd move on. He had wonderful feasts and banquets and quite a lot of cross-dressing would go on because that was an entertaining way to spend your time. It was quite a common thing. They do have one of those at least once a month or a theme of some sort. And yeah, a lot of dancing, a lot of gambling would go on. And that was obviously very costly for the nobles and was ever on the move, just put it mildly. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History Hit podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you've talked about logistics in that domestic sphere. Let's also have a think about warfare, because when Francois came to the throne, he's at that quite brilliant military success in the First Italian War, you mentioned in Milan, but then afterwards, there seems to be this sort of long run of military difficulties. Why do you think that was the case? I don't think he ever planned anything well enough. And I think that he broke his word many times, and so did Charles V. They loathed each other. And when they signed one peace treaty, they hated each other so much that they couldn't even be in the same room. They had to sign it separately. Yeah, I didn't know Henry VIII did as many progresses as Francois, but it was a good practice for warfare because Francois was there on the battlefield usually, not leading from the front always, but when Milan had fallen from French hands since the great victory in 1515, by 1525, Pavier was in the hands of the Swiss who had been occupying Milan 
and Pavia was a monastery nearby. And Francois insanely decided that he could see no more really significant bodies of troops ahead or either side of him. What he hadn't realized was that the woods surrounding this great park where the battle took place were filled with cannon and early muskets. And the flower of the French nobility rode with the king and most of them were killed. It was just a catastrophe. And then Francois was taken prisoner and the shame of that compared to being knighted 10 years earlier. And Francois changed after that. He was taken prisoner and taken without Charles V's orders. The orders reached the battlefield too late and Francois was already on his way to Spain and treated rather like a movie star on tour today. People were thrilled to see such a glamorous-looking king, and he behaved beautifully. And when Charles V got to hear about this, he was absolutely infuriated and shoved Francois into a rather gloomy suite of rooms. It wasn't a cell, but he wasn't going to have him behaving like a movie star in Spain. <laughs> that was the last place he wanted him, becoming popular. Francois then completely fell in upon himself and all his ideals about what he should be and who he should be and how he should live and lead and so on had crumbled and become dust and ashes and the shame he brought upon France. He never really got over that and he was a changed man after. We should say, though, that when he's freed from the captivity, the terms of it are that he allows his two sons, who are six and seven at the time, to be held captive instead. And they're there to try and testify to the fact that he will abide by the terms of a treaty that's been reached. But Francois does anything apart from abide by the terms. That feels fairly callous. First of all, the protocol for bringing Francois out of captivity and swapping the sons, who were told where they were going when they'd almost reached their destination. And they didn't really understand. They were very young. And the protocols to make sure that Francois didn't escape with his sons, there was just every single step was organized by the marshals. And they came to a little island in the middle of the river Bidasoa where they were to be swapped. And they went and embraced their father. And he said to them, I'll be back for you very soon. And of course, the first thing he did when he landed on the other side and the boys had been taken into Spain, they couldn't see each other anymore. Francois mounted the horse waiting for him. And he said, I'm free, I'm king again, and just celebrated. I can understand he was overjoyed, but it was pretty awful for those two children. As he announced, I will not abide by the treaties that I had signed under duress because it's not a proper treaty. A treaty is where you both agree without duress. And as a prisoner, I was told I would never be freed. It was agreed internationally that Francois had done the right thing. And as king, different rules apply. So to make sure that you don't have to give for example, Burgundy, which was one of the richest former independent duchies, back to Charles V because it had belonged to the Habsburgs and before that to the Burgundians themselves. But it was inherited by Charles V and he then lost it. It had been chipped away at and the French had the rich part, put it that way. 
he was never going to give that back, ever. And the people didn't want it to be given back to Charles V or to the Habsburgs. That was the most important part of the treaty. And every single article, actually, was just crossed out and they started again. And in the end, after five years of captivity, becoming more and more sombre and really a proper prison, you know, where they simply were in a tower without any nice furniture or anything. They'd arrived with each with a suite of about 100 men and women and dogs and God knows what else. And they were allowed out riding and so on. Charles V put a stop to that and they were allowed a little dog. It was so bleak for them. But Henry, who became Henry II, he would shout rude things about the emperor when they left church because they were allowed to go out to church once a week on a Sunday. And Henry was so rebellious and he never got over his hatred for Charles V. Understandably. Imagine the effect it had on those boys in terms of their psyche. It must have been extraordinarily awful. That must have just damaged Henry beyond anything. And he came back to France eventually when it was decided just to pay Charles V the money. That was agreed. And Charles V was always permanently short of money. And the boys were set free. The, the viceroy, he said, the Royal Highnesses, forgive me for the role I've had to play in your captivity and so on. He bowed to them and Henry just turned around and showed him his bottom. That was a message to Charles V. One of the ways in which François was significant, which is about things like exploration outside French borders. Can you tell us a bit about those things? The exploration was just that, really. He was very annoyed that the Habsburgs had been given the right to the New World, meaning the Americas and the Portuguese as well. And they had settlements there. And nobody had been up north that we know about. And so Francois got to Canada, which he mapped. And he went on three journeys, but each one was less rewarding. The first voyage was really the most profitable from the point of view of being able to map Canada, hence Quebec and the French-Canadian part of Canada. It started there. And there were islands as well in the Caribbean, but there was not a significant addition of territories, especially when you think of the time it took to get there and back. I would say Francois started something very important, which was to get an empire, if you like, of his own, for the French people and for France. But it didn't go further than mapping and some very basic settlements, which were then expanded upon and held on to. And there's also, of course, in the midst of all these kind of messy and complex foreign affairs, something intriguing happens, which is the alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire. Tell us about this. Why did it come about? What were its consequences? Henry was, in a way, the least significant because he could provide the least troops, but he could tip the balance of power. So Francois could never go anywhere without wondering what was happening up north. Calais was held by the English, of course, and so they could land without any real difficulty because they had quite a large chunk of territory around Calais. And Francois was hunting for a plausible and strong ally. And Suleiman was at the peak of his powers and became an ally of Francois, which shocked the Christian world. They were just dumbstruck by this alliance. 
but it made perfect sense and it was continued by Henry II and by Catherine and Charles IX under Catherine's eye. In the end, Suleiman found Francois so unreliable and he also worked with Charles V, but he found him just as hopeless and never coming up with the right amounts of money or troops or ships or whatever it was needed. The papacy was absolutely flawed by this development. The Christian world was stunned. Makes a lot of sense. So overall, I feel like we've gained this picture of Francois, which is really mixed. I mean, he's brilliant and odious, unreliable and self-indulgent, but also kind of great Renaissance king, ostentatious, energetic, restless, but, you know, sometimes brilliant, sometimes awful. We have the luxury now, 500 years to look back on Francois. And that gives us some time to contextualise. Coming out of feudalism, becoming nations, Francois created France as we know it today, with making one language throughout France. He created a French identity and a sense of belonging, which was so strong that we can see it today. It's absolutely the imprimatur of Francois Premier is crucial to the French identity from that time to this. It really does. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to him and giving us a sense of how important he was and why we should be remembering him 475 years after he died. Thank you so much, Leonie Frieda, for your time. And if people want to read more, they need to pick up a copy of your book, Francis I, The Maker of Modern France. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. We now have almost 100 podcasts that we've created since last April, all available for you to listen to again or even discover for the first time wherever you get your podcasts. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.